Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8 for our study this evening. Hebrews chapter 8. And also put a finger in Genesis 15. We're going to be looking at Genesis 15 as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for our high school students and for our junior high students, college students. Lord, I just pray that it would be a very special night up in the high school room, in the junior high room, and you'd comfort their hearts and assure their hearts. Lord, we just thank you for Andrew and Janae and their hard work and the things that you have for them in the future as well. And we just pray that you would encourage them and bless them. And as a church family, Rocky Mountain Calvary, that we could really come behind our youth. We pray, Lord, for the kids that are growing up in this church, that they would know you, know you personally, follow you. We pray for the youth of our community, those that, you know, they would never think about coming into a church. God, that you would stir in a powerful way. Lord, we just pray for your will uh, for the future of the high school ministry. And as we study tonight, God, we pray that you would really speak to us, that we'd be encouraged about the new covenant and the old covenant being obsolete. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A greater covenant. Tonight we're going to learn about the new covenant that our high priest, Jesus Christ, brings us into. In an ideal world, we would study chapter 8 and 9 together. As you know, the chapter and verses have been added by the translators to help us find particular verses not in the original text. We're going to break it up into two studies. We're going to look just at chapter 8 this evening, looking at how the old covenant is obsolete and the new covenant is better. We'll take some time to really learn about covenant What does covenant mean? What is covenant from God's perspective? But first, to talk about something being obsolete, I've got some help here. This comes from a 96 Honda Accord and is actually a car phone. Not too many of these hit the market because the cell phone overtook it a few years later. But you plug this in, to your car and it's connected to the console, you'd have to pay for an AT&T subscription and then you would have your bat phone right there. But this is the only place that that would work. You know, this, this was not a mobile phone, this was a car phone. Now, can we agree, church, this is obsolete. What if you went into AT&T and you said, come on, hook me up. I, I love this, I don't want a cell phone, I want this to, to work. They're going to look at you and go, what, what planet are you living on? That's crazy talk. This is, this is obsolete, okay? How many of you ever had a Nokia? All right. This is a 2000. Some still have a Nokia. Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. This right here is a 2000 Nokia and it is pretty awesome. In its day, when this came out, this was not very common. Had the flip out to where you could text, but not too many people did text. All right? Inside of these Nokias, there's a chip that if you went to the AT&T store, Verizon store, they're going to look at you and say, guess what? This is obsolete. You are going to connect with no one through these phones. Right? At the end of our study, we're going to read that the new covenant 
is better, is greater, that the old covenant is obsolete. This Hebrew church, these Jews that had gotten saved, they were being tempted to want to go back to the old covenant. This is the old covenant. You're not going to connect with God through the old covenant because the new covenant is far greater. So let's take a moment to make sure that we understand covenant before we get into this chapter. Because covenant's not a word that we use. It's not something that's part of our culture. A covenant is a promise. It's a solemn agreement between two parties. It's a testament. It's a making of a will. But it always involves two parties, and it's this commitment And in the Old Testament, we'll see that it always involved blood. It always involved blood. It was this commitment that was taken so seriously that says, I'm going to draw blood. If If I break this covenant, if I break this commitment, it's a matter of life and death. So turn with me to Genesis 15, and we see God giving the covenant to Abraham. And it's foreshadowing, and it's pointing to the new covenant that we have in grace. If you were to look up the word covenant, you'd find that this is not the first mention of covenant, actually. And we're only in chapter 15 of the Bible. We're only 15 chapters into the Bible. God made a covenant with Noah. And that's referred to several times. Then we get to Abraham, and God's making a covenant with Abraham. Remember, this is a solemn agreement between two people. So we're going to quickly read through this chapter. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceeding great reward. If you look quickly at the end of chapter 14, we find who? Melchizedek, who we've been talking about, right? And how Melchizedek pointed to Jesus Christ. Abram has just defeated these kings, Melchizedek comes to him, and now Abram is having an experience of hearing God's voice in a vision. He says, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? God, this is great. You've given me this promise, but I still don't have kids. My whole house is going to go to my servant. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. I don't have any children of my own. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, speaking of his servant, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Quite a promise. Your descendants will be as the stars. Abraham's response, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? He's saying, how am I going to know that you're going to give me this land? And God then gives a covenant to Abraham. Verse 9, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. A small farm. Bring me a small farm. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece outside the other 
but he didn't cut the birds in two. So everything except for the birds, he cut in two. And this is the idea of covenant. This was the custom, is you would cut open an animal and you would pass through. You'd walk through this animal together very clearly. You've cut covenant. You've made an agreement. If anyone breaks this covenant, let it be your life. And so the stage is set for God to walk through and Abraham to walk through. And when the vultures came down on the carcass and Abram, who would become Abraham, drove them away. So here he is, waiting for God to show up, and he's just driving away the vultures. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So now he's asleep. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that's not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, speaking of their time in Egypt. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. I'll judge Egypt. Afterward, they shall come out with great possession. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. That's for a whole other Bible study. Just file that away. Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down, and it was dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I will give you this land from the river of Egypt. And then we see the boundaries of the land that God promised to Abraham's descendants. Did you notice how many parties passed through? One. God passed through. The torch passes through, but Abram doesn't pass through. What is this communicating? It is dependent upon God's faithfulness, not upon Abram's faithfulness. The new covenant, God's contract with us, is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not our performance. So this covenant that God gave to Abraham ultimately pointed to the new covenant that we're going to study tonight. But first, then we have to ask ourselves, what about this old covenant? Well, what is the old covenant that the new covenant then supersedes? In Exodus 24, verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and all that the Lord had said, we will do and be obedient. So that's Exodus 24, verse 7. God comes to the children of Israel. He gives the law to Moses. Moses reads the book of the covenant, reads the law to the children of Israel, and they say, everything that we've heard, we will do. They were willing to do it. So the old covenant, this old contract with God with man, was based upon the works of Israel. God was very clear. He says, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you obey, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's cursing. So they had a works-based relationship with God. With that came the sacrificial system, with the priests that we've been studying. As they sinned and they fell short, there had to be a blood sacrifice for sin. That old covenant was found in the blood of the lambs and the blood of the goats and all based upon the blood that was given. But each time that there was a sacrifice in this old covenant, it pointed to the day when Jesus would come, be the ultimate sacrifice, 
pay the price for our sin, be presented in the Holy of Holies in heaven so that we could have a covenant with God of grace. Now, for some of you guys, this is review. For some of you, you're hearing this for the first time. But I find that so many times in our relationship with God, we're trying this out. We're trying the 2000 Nokia. We're really going back to an old covenant mindset. If I do this, if I obey, then God's going to bless. If I disobey, then God's going to curse me. That his love for me is dependent upon my performance. So my prayer tonight for us is that we would come to really rest and enjoy the new covenant. So let's get into this. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Don't you love it when the scripture says this is the main point of everything I've been talking about? If you've been studying with us through Hebrews and we've been looking at Melchizedek and looking at how Jesus is greater, like what's the point? Well, the point is right here that we have a high priest that's of the order of Melchizedek who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. Why is it so important that Christ is seated? Why is that mentioned so many times in the New Testament? In fact, in Hebrews, you may want to write this down, there's the reference that Christ is seated at the throne in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 10, verse 12, and then chapter 12, verse 2. So we have four times, including this time in chapter 8, that we see Jesus seated at the throne in heaven. Seated is a position of rest. When you get done with your day and you've worked hard, you come home, you have some dinner, you put your feet up on your favorite couch or your lazy boy, watch the news or some sports or Netflix or whatever, you're at a place of rest, aren't you? You're, you're seated, you're, you're resting. As we've been studying in Hebrews, the old covenant priests could never rest. There was a never an end to the animal sacrifice for sin. It was never enough. The sacrifice was never enough. But the sacrifice of Christ is more than enough. Amen? To where Christ died, he rose again, and now he's seated in the heavens. He's seated at the throne of the Father. As we think of the throne, the throne is the ultimate place of power. It's over all of our sin, our situations, the chaos in the world. We can't understand all of the current events that are taking place, but we know that all things are underneath his feet. Sometimes in my perspective, as I'm approaching God, I fail to remember that he is seated. He's, Christ is seated at the throne. All things are underneath his feet. He's not stressed. He's not wondering what he's going to do. He's seen it all before. He's at the throne, and that throne is the ultimate place of power. What is Christ doing at the throne in verse 2? A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, and not man. Jesus is a servant. Even in his glorified state, he's serving. The idea of service in the Greek is a minister in a priestly sense. It's the reality of the new realm. So, so Christ, as the ultimate priest, he's not serving in a tabernacle here on earth, but he's serving at the throne room. He's serving in the presence of the Father, the true tabernacle. Again, this takes us back to the Old Testament. What's the tabernacle? The children of Israel, as they got set free from bondage, 
They're traveling in the wilderness. God spoke to Moses and said, I want you to build a tabernacle. It literally means tent of meeting. It's where God would meet with the children of Israel. It's where God chose to put his presence. It's not that his presence was contained there, but he says, I'm going to meet with you here. And in the tabernacle were these different furniture that God had placed and all of these ornate things that are put inside of the, the tabernacle, all leading to the Holy of Holies. And a veil would separate the Holy of Holies. And Jesus is ministering not in this earthly tabernacle, but the tabernacle that is in heaven. You may want to write down Exodus 25:40 because there we find that Moses was given very specific instructions of the dimensions of the tabernacle and it was a pattern of the throne room of God. So if you study the tabernacle and you know the furniture and the instruments and the holy of holies when you get to heaven and you see the throne room of God you're going to go, this is vaguely familiar, but far better. So the tabernacle was pointing to the throne room of God. In verse 3, For every priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. So, so high priests would offer gifts and sacrifices for the people. So if Christ is a priest, then he would be offering gifts and sacrifices as well. Remember, what causes Jesus to stand out as a high priest? He never had to make sacrifice for his own sin. The other high priests always had to make sacrifice first for their own sin. We'll see more of that in chapter 9. Verse 4, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. So so if Jesus were here on, on earth, he wasn't interested and being a priest under the law in the temple in the Old Covenant. That, that's not what he was intending to do at all. In verse 5, these priests that serve in the tabernacle, who serve the copy and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown on the mountain. Let's try to get perspective for just a minute, okay? Does Jesus show up Matthew 1.1? Absolutely not. Is Jesus God? Yes. What's the purpose of the Old Testament? To point to Jesus. So everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So as God is writing the Old Testament and gives the instruction for the tabernacle— and the function of the high priest, what was in the mind of God? Jesus, the new covenant, the ultimate high priest who's entered into the Holy of Holies to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we could enjoy forgiveness. It was always in the heart and mind of God to send his son to die for our sins. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the father wasn't going, oh, what do we do now? They made the wrong choice. I know that I should have never given them a choice, right? He knew exactly what they would do, and Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth. So the tabernacle was pointing to Christ fulfilling it. In verse 6, Now he obtained a more excellent ministry, a greater ministry than the old covenant. The law is great at pointing out our sin. 
Without the law, we wouldn't know our need for Christ. But how much greater is the ministry of Christ through grace than the law? The law cannot provide salvation. The law never provided the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to where we could be the temple of the Holy Spirit. The law didn't result in changed lives. The law didn't result in us being adopted as sons and daughters of God. Jesus has a more excellent ministry. So hopefully, as the Hebrew church is reading this, they're going, why would I want to go back to the old covenant? Why would I want to start looking to an earthly priest? Why would I want to trust in my own effort when I can trust in Christ? And I think we've all experienced in our own lives, when we get our eyes off of Christ, and we put them on ourselves or on another person, man, the ministry goes way down. The life change goes way down. The effectiveness goes way down. But when our hearts and minds are fixed upon Jesus and drawing near to him and walking with him, I think we could express, man, Jesus has a far greater ministry, a more excellent ministry than the old covenant. Speaking of this ministry of Christ, inasmuch he is also a mediator of a better covenant. What's a mediator? A reconciler, two parties that are fractured. We're fractured because of our sin. We're, we're separated from God because of our sin. And so Christ is the mediator. He's the, the reconciler in the new covenant. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. The man, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could reconcile us to the Father. In chapter 9 verse 15, we'll get to this next week, it says, And for this reason he's the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of of the internal inheritance, the mediator of a better covenant. We're going to celebrate communion tonight in just a few minutes. Remember when Jesus gave us the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is a new contract. This is a new way of me relating to you. This is my new commitment to you, and it's based upon my blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that brings in the new covenant, which is a better covenant. Now, church, why is this a better contract? Put yourself in the position of buying a used car at a dealership. I just got your attention, right? And they offer you two different contracts on some car, and you're trying to evaluate what's the better contract. Gang, this is a no-brainer. The old covenant compared to the new covenant Because this new contract is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's based upon the blood of Jesus instead of my works and my performance. Is it dangerous to start trusting in my own works for salvation? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because what am I doing? I'm taking away from the finished work of Christ. I'm saying Christ's work's not enough and it's dependent upon my own work. So it is a far better covenant. We're going to see why, which was established on better promises. There's nothing wrong with the old covenant, the prior promises. The problem was our sin. What makes these promises better is because they're based upon Christ. Verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, 
then no place would have been sought for a second covenant. This is true. If the old covenant worked so well, right, there, there would be no need for a new covenant. If this was so awesome technology, this bat phone right here, there'd be no need for the smartphone that, that's in, in your pocket. Or maybe in your pocket. Unless you still have the Nokia. Right? So. Verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, please pause, please under that line that. Because finding fault with them. Was the fault with the old covenant? No. The fault was with the children of Israel. The fault was with us. We couldn't keep the contract. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Now he quotes Jeremiah 31. For, for those of you that like to geek out on Bible facts, this is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. Okay? Jeremiah 31. God is prophesying of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This prophecy was 600 years prior to the coming of Jesus Christ, under the reign of Josiah, when Israel was in rebellion to God. You read the Kings and the Chronicles, and Israel repeatedly, over and over, walks in rebellion to God. Sometimes they would have a king after God's heart, and things would get a little better, but then they'd ultimately go to idolatry again, to the point where God is going to take them captive in Babylon. Judah, the southern two tribes, are going to be taken captive by Babylon. Assyria has already been taken captive. If God didn't have unconditional love for Israel, this would be a great time for him to say, you guys made your own bed, lie in it. Here's my contract with you. You broke it. I'm done. I'm moving on. In the midst of their darkest moments spiritually, God prophesies through Jeremiah, and he says, I'm going to give you a new covenant, a new covenant of grace that's going to come through the Messiah. Praise God. I mean, that, that's God. That's the new covenant. When we deserve to be rejected by God, that's when he gave his son for us. That's when he pursued us with his grace. Describing this new covenant, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they didn't continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So he's very clearly saying this is different than the old covenant that I gave to them in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. Don't you love even the old covenant, the way that God describes his relationship with Israel? He took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. It's very personal. Verse 10 for this covenant, the new covenant, that I make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So if you're taking notes, why is this new covenant greater? Why is it better? First is greater inwardness. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, I'm going to write on their minds. I'm going to write upon their hearts. See, rules are only rules if they're not in our mind and our heart. We may be motivated to keep rules, but when a heart is touched, when God writes upon the heart and upon the mind, then there's true life change. 
Even in the old covenant, God was never just concerned with the externals. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant, was never just about an outward sign. It was to represent a heart that had been submitted to God, a heart that had been marked by God. Maybe you've experienced this as you entered into the new covenant. As you trusted Christ's finished work upon the cross for your salvation, your thoughts started to change. Not that you didn't struggle with sinful thoughts and temptation, but you go, man, where's this thought coming from to read my Bible? Where's this thought coming from to pull my car over and to be thankful? Where's this thought coming from that I need to go and share this person with this person about the love of Christ? That's the new covenant. That's the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And it's not just external, but it's internal. We don't ever want to stop operating with God in this capacity. We don't ever want our minds and our hearts to get so calloused that God can't write his law, his will, his ways upon our hearts and upon our minds. But there's a huge difference. Maybe you've heard me share this before over the years, but when I was growing up, we had our chores Monday through Friday, and then we had our Saturday chores as we got a little bit older. And my, my dad's like, look, I know you guys want to go have fun, but before you go have fun, uh, you need to either wash the car or mow the lawn. So my older brother, he would do one, I would do the other. So for quite a few years, be washing the car. It was a, a Ford Fairmont station wagon, and then we graduated to a Ford Taurus station wagon. Woo, you know. And I did really not care about the quality control of washing that Ford Taurus until I got my driver's license. And I was going to go on a date in the Ford Taurus, take my girlfriend to Baskin Robbins, right? So I scrubbed that car like I had never scrubbed it before. I vacuumed. Why? Because I wanted to impress my date with a Ford Taurus. Come on, right? <laughs> but what happened? Something got a hold of my heart. Something got a hold of my mind. And it wasn't just, oh, you've got to wash the car. This is your Saturday morning chore. I grew up in a Christian family. I, I was born on a Sunday. The next Sunday I was in church. I went to Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. And I always heard, Eric, you need to read God's word. Eric, you need to read God's word. And there were times that I did out of law. This is what you do as a Christian. Then when God got a hold of my heart when I was a freshman in high school, really spoke to me that he loved me when I didn't want anything to do with him. I literally woke up the next morning after God revealing his, his love and I wanted to read the Bible. And I started reading Matthew chapter 1. What happened? God wrote something on my heart. He wrote something on my mind. And it was powerful. That's the new covenant. So, church, we're not about behavior modification first and foremost. Do you understand that? You know, our job is to introduce people to Jesus. To introduce people to the new covenant to show them their need for their co the new covenant based on their sin. And when they trust Christ for salvation and they believe in Christ and Christ begins to live in them, he is going to direct them. He is going to write things on their heart and write things upon, upon their mind. And he can do far more than we could, we could ever do. It's the power of, of inwardness. But then we also see in verse 10, it's a greater relationship. It says, 
I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Just as inwardness goes farther than rules, so does relationship. Relationship goes much farther than the old covenant ever could. The new covenant brings us into greater relationship with God. When Jesus rose from the dead in the gospel of John, he's speaking to Mary. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I've not ascended to my father, but I go to my brother, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Did you catch that? Jesus is introducing the new covenant. He's fulfilled the new covenant through his death and resurrection. He says, Mary, I want you to go and tell the disciples that it's my father and your father. When you study the Old Testament, Israel did not address God as father. When Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, he says, this is how I want you to pray. Our father, which art in heaven, that had to blow their mind. That's not how they were taught in the Old Testament to pray. It was Lord, all-powerful, most high. It wasn't this personal and intimate relationship father and son, father and daughter. And they watched Jesus for three years have this beautiful relationship with the father and meant everything to him to where he's taking time alone to be with the father and he rises again and then he says, you know what, it's, it's my father and your father. He's your dad. It's greater relationship. The new covenant and grace has brought us into greater relationship with God where he's our dad and we're adopted sons and daughters. We're joint heirs with Christ. And, and that makes it a better covenant. We go on in verse 11. None of them shall teach their neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, to the greatest of them. This is a greater knowledge. Knowledge of the old covenant was corporate. But now the new covenant comes individually as people trust people, as people trust Christ for salvation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit being expressed through the, no, the new covenant. It doesn't mean that we don't teach. It doesn't mean that we don't share, that we don't preach the gospel. But the change agent isn't our preaching, isn't our sharing, isn't our creativity. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to cause people to want to know the Lord. Sunday after the 11 o'clock service, it was right down here, talking with people, praying with people. It was probably a half hour or 45 minutes, and people were waiting and waiting, and, and there was a, a young man here and a, a young gal. They're probably in their early 20s, and, and you're just waiting and waiting, and, and got, to, got to talk with them, and he just looks at me, and he says, you know, first thing he said, he introduced himself. He says, I'd like to receive Christ as my Savior. Sweet, you know, awesome. Do you have any questions? No, not really. Does it make sense to you? Yeah, it sure does. Are you ready to pray to receive Christ? Yep, pray to receive Christ. Now, was that my work? Not at all. What was happening with that? That's the Holy Spirit crying out to that young man saying, you need to know me. You need to trust me. You need to follow me. And I know there's not a lot of hope in this world, but we should be at, at hope in the new covenant and the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Holy Spirit's at work in the lives of people to cause them to know Christ. It's the explosion of the knowledge of God. There's a greater knowledge. Greater forgiveness in verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember 
no more. The old covenant could only cover sins, but it couldn't remove sin. Couldn't take away the memory of sin. So we find that this beautiful attribute in God's character where he's merciful and he's just. He's merciful in forgiving our sins, but he's just in punishing Christ for our sin. That's the new covenant. Christ paid the price for our sin so that we could be forgiven to the point where God doesn't even remember our sin. That is incredible. That's a greater forgiveness. We don't have that ability as as humans. If you really sinned against me, hurt me, I may be able to forgive you, but I'll remember it. But when I hurt you and I hurt those that I love and I say things that I, sh- I shouldn't say, I can say, would you forgive me? Oh, that was, that was so stupid. I don't know why that I said that. I could tell that I really hurt you. How many times do we wish, I, I, I wish I could take that back? But it's too late, right? And that loved one can forgive us and choose to walk in forgiveness and apply forgiveness, but they'll always remember. Do you believe this? In the new covenant, God remembers your sin no more. So when he relates to us, he's relating to us in that depth of forgiveness. Where we're not separated in fellowship with God because of our sin, that sin's been removed to where he chooses to not remember our sin. F.F. Bruce said this, it is because his grace has determined to, it is because his grace has determined to forgive them not in spite of his holiness, but in harmony with it. Verse 13, and this is where we wrap up. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So don't try to relate with God, communicate with God, be saved by the old covenant. It's obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already vanished away. If this Hebrew church wasn't convinced by this point, man, I don't know how they would be convinced. And in reading this and studying it and praying through it, aren't you going, man, there's no way I'm going back to the old covenant. I've got a new covenant, a new covenant of grace. So let's apply this for just a moment and see if we can go deeper in really enjoying this covenant that God has given to us. In your heart and your mind, was there a little bit of you that thought, you know, if I come to Wednesday night Bible study, God's going to bless me? Is there a little part of you that says, you know, if I would have stayed home tonight and relaxed, God wouldn't have blessed me. He wouldn't have met me in that place of staying home and resting. Is there a little part of you that goes, you know what, if I get up and read my Bible tomorrow morning, I'm going to be closer with God. Or if I read through the Bible in a year, then no doubt God would bless. Or here I am as a parent, and here's the things that I know I'm supposed to do as a parent, and if I do those really well, then God's going to bless my kids. Or this is what God says about marriage. And if I do these things in marriage, well, well then God's going to bless. This is what God says about singleness. And if I do it this way, then God's going to bless. What have we just done? 
we've just gone back to the 2000 Nokia. We've gone back to the old covenant. It's a works-based relationship with God. We're not living in the new covenant. You're saying, Eric, it's heretical. This doesn't seem like, what are you telling me? Not to come to church and not read my Bible and not apply God's word in parenting? Yep, that's what I'm saying. God bless you. Have a nice night. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. But it's the understanding. It's the understanding. God, I'm coming to Wednesday night church because you're good. And you've already paid for all my sin. And I, I know your blessing is not determined on whether I come to Wednesday night church or not. God, I want to be a godly parent. But I realize that I fall short. And what I'm really depending upon is new covenant grace that would flow into our family. And out of that, I'm going to apply myself. And out of that, I'm going to try to grow. God, would you bless my marriage by your grace in a new covenant type of way? And yes, I want to apply myself and be a godly spouse, but Lord, this, this, is, this is bigger than me. Lord, I, I'm single. I'm trying to live for you. I feel alone. I feel tempted. Would you help me through your new covenant grace? So, it's the heart motivation and the belief of the heart to really rest in the new covenant of God's grace, to know that you know that you know that you're forgiven because of what Christ has done. See, when Jesus told us to take communion, he knew our tendency would be to move away from the cornerstone. Our tendency would be to forget how powerful his sacrifice, his new covenant. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. Never forget my broken body. Never forget my shed blood. Examine yourself. Why are you examining yourself? For the sake of relationship. Jesus, I want to be close with you. I've shared before, it seems like my tendency is to move away from a new covenant type of relationship with God. There's moments that I'm there, but I tend to always go back to an old covenant type relationship with God, a works-based type relationship with God. Have you ever considered the story of the prodigal son? There's two prodigals, if you really examine it. There's two prodigal sons. There's the son who rebelled, took his inheritance and went and lived a sinful life, got tired of it, sick of it, and he comes back. But there was also a prodigal son who was trusting in himself. They got very upset that his father was gracious. It was the older brother. What was he saying? I'm good at works. I'm good at keeping my act together. You just gave away some of my inheritance. The younger brother already got his half. Everything now is going to go to the responsible one. And there was something there for the older brother to learn as well. To learn grace. To learn how to be able to give and receive grace. Because if you have an old covenant relationship with God, you get really mad when God blesses somebody else when they don't deserve it. Like, I've been working so hard. I go to Wednesday night Bible study. They don't ever show up at Wednesday night Bible study, right? There's a lot here, isn't there? So enjoy communion tonight. Enjoy the new covenant. Ask the Lord to take you deeper into the understanding of his commitment to you in his blood. Let's stand together and let's pray.
Jesus, we ask that you would really bless this time of communion, that you would help us to live in the new covenant. There's got to be something here if this, this church, the Hebrew church, is being tempted to go back to the old covenant, that we're going to be tempted in the same way. So we want to do this in remembrance of you, and we pray that it would be a sweet time of fellowship with you. And Lord, you know hearts, and if there's those that need to come to know you, that tonight would be the night where they would trust you, that they would believe, turn from sin, and receive this new covenant, this contract that you want to have with them. In Jesus' name, amen.